1: We've done your homework. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
2: Today's guest and I crossed paths once before, some 20 years ago. In 2001, I took my only foray into directing movies. Matthew Landfield was just out of college, visiting his parents in a dilapidated building on Desprosus Street in Lower Manhattan that turned out to be part of our set.
3: I remember you being outside on Disprosa Street with... um, was it Jennifer Love Hewitt? Yes. So you guys were outside. I remember the uh, grip and Electric guys come up the stairs, and they had to run some lighting cable through my mom's kitchen window. Yeah. Um, you spent more time with my dad that day than... I'm going to get to that story. I now.
2: did. Maybe I should have been looking at the dailies. Like I said, it was my only attempt at directing. But Matthew's dad, Ronnie Landfield, was like someone out of a New York past. He was a modernist painter who'd raised a family there starting in the 70s. Gentrification didn't really begin in Tribeca until after 9-11, much later than in neighboring Soho. When we were shooting, Ronnie's block was just an Italian restaurant and a row of former industrial buildings. In those buildings, dozens of people like him made their homes and their studios. Ronnie invited me upstairs to see his paintings. He was a character, with his cigarettes and a Bronx accent I thought had died off, punching consonants like they were Sonny Liston. I wanted to quit my movie and start a new one about him. Dustin Hoffman would play the lead. The whole scene stuck with me over the decades and a couple of years ago, I found myself driving down the same block. The building at 31 dysprosis was gone. An empty lot instead. I searched the address, hoping I might find what would replace it. What I found instead was a brilliant, lyrical, almost obsessively researched 8,000-word essay about that single plot of Earth. It's called Requiem for a Living City, And it's the story of 31 dysprosis for 10,000 years. And who was the author of this epic tale?
3: None other than Ronnie Landfield's son, Matthew. You know, my mom and dad were probably some of the earlier people to move into Tribeca. A couple of their families that were already there. I didn't come along until another five, six, seven years later. I was born in 1976. There was no school. There was uh, there no was, Whole Foods. No, there was no, no Whole Foods. No ATM, no dry cleaner. <laughs> no Whole Foods. I mean, yeah, there was, yeah, there was, was nothing. There, there was nothing down there. Where did you go get the groceries? So we would go to the West Village. There was a, a, a grocery store called the Pioneer on Bleecker <laughs> Street that we would have to walk to. And there was another place called Morgan's on um, West Broadway, which on in the dead uh, of winter Canal. you were walking to go get the groceries. We had to, yeah, had a little house that. on Canal Street. I mean, it, it sounds crazy, but it, it, at that time it was like living a pioneer lifestyle in the middle of this urban wilderness. It sounds more like you grew up on a farm. <laughs> it was like that. So, what happened with the school? I guess a school called PS Three Annex was opened in 1977 um, by a pioneering principal, a woman named Blossom Gallertner, and she. Uh, was very progressive. She had a very kind of open-minded perspective on education, and she opened a, a school inside of Independence Plaza, which was a large housing development, tiny little school. But um, in those days, there were so few children that the city didn't want, didn't want to keep the school open. And, and a lot of the residents, including my mother, had to fight the city to keep a school in that area of Tribeca. So in, in the film Pollock, you, you probably yes, know the Ed Harris did. film. Yeah. There's a scene where, you know, uh, Pollock and Lee Krasner are, are talking and, and he says, hey, let's make a baby. And she says, no, you know, you need and you need and you need. And uh, she she turns him down because they they, they don't have any money. He's... Kind of crazy. Yeah, he's you know he's got all. all he's these not problems. father of the year material. No, yeah. and so no. Look, my dad is not Jackson Pollock, <laughs> right. and my mom was not Lee Krasner. Right, but they faced a lot of the same issues, a lot of the same challenges. You know, they they, they didn't have a lot of money. They were my dad grew up in the Bronx. He was uh, just a basically just a, a working class kid, and my mom was um, uh, raised by a single mother in the the East Side. My grandmother was an artist, so she never had any money either. And so my mother uh, was very lived a very bohemian life. Um, I was going to show you a picture later of uh, of one of Klaus Oldenburg's happenings, where my mother was one of the cast members of uh, of one of those those performance art kind of. Thinking. Was she an actress? She she was a performer, dancer. Uh, where did they meet? I think they met in Woodstock, folk dancing or something. I, I, that that was the. Was your father into that too? Yeah, they were all into that it's in the sixties, in, in those early sixties. Yeah, yeah. If you wanted to meet a woman that you were
2: attracted to, right away you were into whatever she was into. Oh yeah, I'm into that dancing. Oh sure, I do that all the time. I know that deal. Yeah. My my, my ex wife said to me, "I'm a vegetarian," and I said, "So am I." That's so funny. I just had a hamburger like three hours ago. I was like, oh, yeah, "I was a vegetarian." Exactly.
3: Anyway, so there. So she yeah, was a so, performer. So my mom, my mom had been a performer. She'd had a clothing store with my grandmother for a little while in the East Village, but you know. My mother and my father got together in the 60s and um, my my father at the time was sort of like, I want to say like an enfant terrible of... Of art in a way like he was very young compared to so many of his compatriots but he was very ambitious and very determined he was ready for success yeah very, very driven and um, at his pace yeah, exactly <laughs> right. um, but you know like succeeding in the art world is, was, is never easy even if you are coming at it uh, with, with lots of resources and support from family money and all kinds of things and my dad didn't have any of that he had to fight his own family to become an artist now, what did his dad do? a delivery man and, and he was a working, working, class, was guy. working class guy. And in the, the Bronx. grandmother that had the apartment in Chelsea was whose mother? That was my mother's mother. My mother's father was an artist, also. He was mm-hmm. a graphic artist. He and his brothers had been. They were born in Savannah, Georgia. All of them. There were four of them. But their mother moved them back to Lithuania. Uh, as children, and so, like in the 1920s and 30s, they lived in Lithuania, and they had a very, very, very difficult time there. And then, when they left, their mother stayed and and died in the Holocaust. So, my grandfather, my grandfather and his his brothers were extraordinarily talented in the arts. They were in, they were uh, cartoonists and and uh, draw drawers, basically illustrators. My my grandfather's brother is a a cartoonist known known by the name Val Jaffe. Who does the fold-ins? Um, and my grandfather worked with him for a little while doing cartoons, but um, my grandfather was was I think a little more fragile than Al, Al was, and and um, never really recovered from the loss of his mother in the mm-hmm. Holocaust. And wow. so uh, he he uh, struggled with depression and basically PTSD for all of my mother's childhood, and wasn't around. And so, my mother was raised by my grandmother and her grandparents in, uh, in Forest Hills and, and whatnot. So, um...
2: But I want to get back to your parents. Yes, yeah,
3: They were sort of like these kind of bohemian kids just yeah. kind of on their own. And... My mom was very devoted to my, my father, and my father was very determined, and he— uh, She was very devoted to your father. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Because she lived under these—I mean, I'm, I
2: don't want to describe it like it was that tough, but was the place warm? Was the, Did they turn the heat on? Sometimes. Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> yeah. so, I mean so your mom yeah. had little kids. Yeah, so— And, and right. when you say, the Pollock um, reference, right. was your mother sitting there like— you know, when are we going to get out of here? Or was, well,
3: there, was, she, was she down the line? She was with him. She was. And, but, you That's know, amazing. neither of my parents graduated from college. My father attended art school for a short time and decided that wasn't going to Pratt. Uh No, he, was, he actually went to the Kansas City Arts Institute for a little while. But decided that, you know, all he really wanted to do was paint. Mm-hmm. So he came back to New York and, and went into painting. My mother... Uh, didn't 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 finish her college education and I think that that was something that she maybe regretted over over time and sort of was a you know she's of a generation of women where that was not as important it wasn't as typical yeah. right and and so um, did your dad have a gallery that represented him back then? Did, did he have some success right away? He did. He In the in the, in the the late 60s, he, he was right in there with a lot of, of important uh, painters and sculptors who were doing— I'm not just saying this. I love your dad's painting. Oh, good. I'm sure he would love to hear you say that. You know, he— he he, so he would see so what things were working. Yeah. By the time I came along, my dad had already dealt a reputation in, in the art world, was selling his paintings pretty regularly, and their housing was affordable. Which is important for your career. For an artist, it's everything. So I come along and then my brother comes along. And then what happens in 79, actually, when uh, the year that you, you came to New York, the rent w- was tripled. And, and all of a sudden, um, this manageable life becomes a, a little bit more difficult. And my, my dad still continued through the early 80s to have success in the, art, in the arts uh, selling his work. But it was—it became harder. It mm-hmm. just was harder, and of course, you have a family. Yeah, you have two same. children, and, and they're um, only getting more expensive. Things are yeah. are more challenging, and so you know, uh, it, it was—it was not. I, I would I would not say that their life was a panacea. It was it was a challenge. Yeah. Uh, it was always difficult. Um, and he last there how much longer? I mean, they lived there. Until 2012. 2012.
2: So when I saw him, because I want to paint this picture quickly yeah. before I forget, which is, and, and again, this is where you're really going to correct me if I'm wrong, because when I tell this story, I always turn your father into like a Dustin Hoffman character, you know, like like <laughs> Dustin Hoffman would play your father.
3: Not, not He doesn't not, have a very heavy off, New York yeah. accent, correct? Because I play him like he's got a really thick New York accent. He, he. You know, um, my wife would say that he does, but yeah. but he doesn't really. Like, there's certain words that he... That in my really movie hard. version
2: of this, your dad is a really super thick New York guy. And he smoked. <laughs> yeah, he did. Because like I remember, name. this is my remember, yeah. this is what I remember. I'm standing out in front of this building and your dad shows up and it's freezing cold. Yeah. And I'm sitting there and he starts talking to me. He goes, You're uh, making a movie here? And I'm like, Yeah, we're making it. He's like, Yeah, you're uh, Alec Baldwin, right? You are like an actor, right? I'm like, Yeah, I'm directing this movie. He's like, Yeah, yeah. I go, You live here? He's like, Yeah, I live here with my wife. I'm a painter. And he lights a cigarette. And I go, You got an extra cigarette on you? And I love when people look at me like, You're a rich movie star and you're bumming a cigarette off of me and I'm uh, (laughs) living in uh, this loft in Desbrosa Street? Sure, okay, I'll give you a smoke. Here we go. And I'm sitting there smoking a cigarette with your father on the street and I th- and, and just something happened to me I'm like I gotta live in this building <laughs> I wanna live in this I wanna get a whole floor of this yeah, building yeah. I wanna have like a section of this building to myself and I'm gonna blow it all up and fix it all up and blah 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 but um he lasted till 2012 yeah
3: I mean they they basically they never they were left forced to until Hurricane Sandy really kind of Sandy where were you at the time uh I, I was living in Brooklyn with my family so you've never left the city have you in terms for of college but I haven't lived in other places you, uh, where'd you go again I went to college in Vermont at a place called Middlebury College. Oh, I know Middlebury. Yeah. 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 I love Middlebury. Um, you went to Middlebury four years? Four years. What did you study? I studied theater. I studied filmmaking, geography, <laughs> uh, you know, a range of things. A little mostly, tapas Yeah, a mostly acting, mostly theater, mostly film. What did you want to do? I wanted to be an actor when I got out of school and then a filmmaker. Right, which yeah. is what you're doing now. Which is what I do now, yeah. Now, now uh, so 2012, so he leaves only because, so he would have stayed there had been many years of legal battles with the landlord and it's you know long they want to get everybody out of thing. there they, you know I, they had basically been living with the specter of eviction from 79 till you know 2012 2013 the whole the whole time they were there eventually though their their place was was rent stabilized everyone in the building their their units were rent stabilized and they had a right to stay so then the storm comes so yeah so in sandy you know and my my father's studio is on the ground floor and you know my my father being who he is, it's a little bit crazy. They stayed in the building. They were there the whole the whole time. They did not evacuate. He didn't want to leave his work. He didn't want to leave the the, the, the place. So he witnessed the whole um, neighborhood flood. Where would he go? They went up to uh, some of the upper <laughs> levels of the building because the other folks. I had I see left. your father in my Dustin Hoffman movie. He's
2: smoking a cigarette, looking <laughs> at the window, going, "I'm not leaving." <laughs>
3: Everybody else is leaving. I'm not going anywhere. You're pretty much right. That's exactly how he was. He said the lights went out. Um, the cars the, the, the cars flooded up to almost the roof of the cars. And, um, you know, it, that was like that for about three hours. And then the water went away. And, you know, that part of the city... Is, is in a tidal estuary, the, the, the basement of our building would flood a lot over, yeah. over the many years because it, it was landfill and it was technically part of the river. And so uh, that wasn't a surprise to him, but the flooding in the street was, he had never seen that. And I asked him the other day about it and he said, never, ever, 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 ever in the 43 years of their li- life there, had he ever seen flooding in that yeah, that in was the big one. Like that. that was that was the
2: interesting. How sure. people who don't know that about landfill, and, and maybe you know this because your article speaks to a lot of that history. Which, if I'm not mistaken, just as excavated material from the World Trade Center was responsible for some of the build-out of Battery Park. Absolutely, it was excavation from the subway system that built out some of Tribeca. Correct or no?
3: No, no. Governor's Island, for example, is is mostly the excavation from the Lexington Avenue subway, right? right? right. But Tribeca, because that strip of land was was landfilled between eighteen oh three and eighteen twenty nine, so there was no subway then. Yeah. No subway at that right. time. Most of it probably came from the leveling of hills in Manhattan right. because right. Manhattan had then. a lot of hills in those days, and also oyster shells and garbage and broken ships, bodies, and like that undoubtedly, right. right. <laughs> people who drowned in men <laughs> control buildings Probably, yeah, no, okay. exactly
2: so 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 he so the flood comes and what so the happens the flood
3: comes and they ha- they did have to leave right. they did have to leave and basically the the city went through the neighborhood and um declared their building um condemned they condemned that building yes right. and and then did the tenants fight that they they did have to fight that and there was a court case which was there was a little article in the new york times about it um you know, there was a lot of contention about, you know, the state of the building before Sandy had not been great because it hadn't been maintained and the, right. the, and the landlord objected and all this stuff. I can't totally disclose all of the details because there was a settlement, um, but uh, it resolved and then they decided to leave. Upstate? Yeah, to the Hudson Valley. They
2: moved to the Hudson Valley. So so did they try to make it work in New York before they went to the Hudson Valley?
3: You know, my father is a um, – and I'm sure he'll listen to this and, and chuckle. I hope so. But <laughs>
2: Oh, he know, likes me doing my impersonation.
3: <laughs> come on.
2: i right, I'm, I'm spot on here. Come on. I think you're <laughs> It's a terrible, <laughs> terrible impersonation. But I just that's my memory with this tough-looking gnarly guy I'm like, "I'm a painter.
3: I'm a painter, see? Yeah, come up and see my paintings." I mean, he was such a New Yorker to he, me. He was. He, he was. I he's got a little more of the Bronx in there, I think, than uh than that. But you know, the thing with him was that is that um he he's um He's someone who likes to stay. He's a very grounded person. So his initial um, impulse was to move back to the Bronx. he needed a studio. Yeah. I mean, the fact of the matter is... My father had a big studio in Lower Manhattan, and there is no way that yeah. you can replicate that. No, but we're talking we're, about what happened to Tribeca price-wise. Tribeca, but oh, forget Brooklyn. Forget about it. Even we're going to talk about that too. And so,
2: so, so we can't replicate it in the Bronx. The Bronx is getting torn down now too. The Bronx. All my friends yeah. that are real estate executives. That's the that's the not even the next. They're there now. They're tearing everything down. They're talking about million and two million dollar condos overlooking Yankee Stadium. That's going to be your view. <laughs> I mean, they're talking about two movie studios they're building up there. Silver Cup went up there. Absolutely. They're all going to take their properties in Queens, tear that down, build housing. Yeah. I'm not going to name names. Yeah. But some, of them, some of them can tear their spaces down. Some can't.
3: If there's a financial incentive, you know, in New York, there's— the, the land
2: is worth more money it, as residential housing, right. for overlooking the river. You're right over yeah. there on the foot of the 59th Street Bridge in Long Island City. Yeah. Some people who will remain nameless that I know have
3: told me they're going to go up to the Bronx and move their whole operation up to the Bronx. You know that that wasn't my father's first impulse was to move up there, and my brother. Where he's from exactly. <laughs> that funny, yeah. My brother and I kind of invade upon him to to look to look a little further out, and um, so you know he found a place that that where he was able to build a new studio. He built um, one. Yeah, he built one. So and, his
2: settlement and everything put him in a position where he was comfortable. He's are doing okay.
3: So he built a new studio, which uh, was the right thing for him to do. He got a place where he could live and, and work uh, comfortably. So is he up there, and a year goes by, and does he
2: turn to your mother and go, "Man, we should have done this 20 years ago?" You know, th- did he just really sit there and go, "Why did I break my ass <laughs> to stay in Manhattan?"
3: Or did he miss New York? Every time I visit them, we have this conversation. What does he say? We go through it over and over again. And, you know, he does miss Tribeca and misses that neighborhood because there are a lot of things about it that, that made it a wonderful place to be. Um, and it is and it's, it is sad to be gone from there.
2: But are the things he likes, are there pluses about being up there? It's lovely being away from the city, too. Mm-hmm.
3: And, and I think that um, when we think about what Tribeca has become, what their neighborhood became, in the time, even before that Sandy, Diego. That building they're putting up in place of that building is like a strange-looking building. Yeah, I mean, but...
2: Look, it looks like something made
3: of Legos. Their community, the people who were there when they came, all of them are gone. They, they either have um, been bought out uh, or, or forced out or, out or passed away. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's a generational turnover. Isn't
2: it funny how people don't realize? I mean, in my lifetime, I mean, I came here and that was the dawn of the uh, the build out of uh, SoHo and then Tribeca beyond that and then B- B- Battery Park. Did you ever imagine that well, apartments would sell for 30 million dollars right around the corner from where you grew up?
3: I mean, it is I, I mean I think it's unrealistic in a lot of ways, but it, but it, at the same time everybody wants to live there. That's reflective of the bigger trends in our economy and our politics and our world talk right, about that. right now. I mean, talk about how it plays out in New York. Well, I I mean New York is not divorced from the economy of of, of the United States. It, it's part of it, and it always has been. Right. Go, you go all the way back to um, the the very very beginning of that neighborhood of Tribeca in those days, to Alexander Hamilton and and the things that they were dealing with after the Revolution, and if you look through my piece about the evolution of that particular neighborhood, it's always been connected to the economy of of America, and. Right now is no different. And right now we're living in a, in a plutocracy where you have, you know, billionaires right and left. And they, and, and really they have unfettered power to, to buy and sell real estate. And that is very clearly distorting the marketplace in the broader economy.
2: Matthew Landfield on changes at 31 Disprosa Street and around the globe. The battle between preservation and development in New York can be brutal. Perhaps New York's most prominent preservationist is Andrew Berman. He's the one who led the charge to landmark the iconic streets of southern Greenwich Village. After 50 years of people trying to get that area landmarked, we were able to get it
1: landmarked uh, in two what stages. What did it take? We actually had to almost blackmail the city. They wanted to get an area adjacent to that rezoned as a SOP to a, a developer, Trinity Real Estate in this case. Um, and we pushed the city council to say, we won't approve the rezoning that you, the city, want
2: unless you move ahead with this landmarking that the community has been asking for for years. Hear the rest of that interview at here's the thing.org. More with Matthew Landfield coming up.
1: Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
4: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
0: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.
2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. No political battle in recent memory has crystallized attitudes about gentrification more than Amazon's proposal to build its second headquarters in the Queens neighborhood of Long Island City.
3: Overnight, the the real estate values in Long Island City were, went through the roof. Right, and, you know I think that. That's just another indicator of aspects of our economy that are just broken. I think that's true of the whole city in a lot of ways, especially Manhattan. You know, it's very uh, manicured in a way. Uh, yeah, very, uh, very. And I don't want to say it's never gonna go back because one thing that I um, found in in doing the the research into the history of, of um, where I grew up was that the city waxed and waned. Did it really describe a period where it waned. Well, between 1870 and, and 1940, all of lower Manhattan was this massive uh, port. port, just a gigantic shipping Docks. Uh, hub from, yeah. from, from, from the very tip of the battery all the way up, goods and, and all kinds of foods and services, until after the Second World War, when shipping transformed into container shipping. The technology of container ships was developed. These Enormous tanker-sized ships that could ship more, that could ship faster, and it was, just it, was more, it was less expensive. Right. So the, all of that moved to the port of Elizabeth in New Jersey. That meant that the entire West Side became a ghost town. Yeah, and you have this sort of vacuum of space, and and into that vacuum, artists start to Ronnie Landfield yeah, shows yeah, them and wants a loft. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So that's that's one version of how uh, the city, that part of the city has waxed and waned. Um, But even before that, when um, the neighborhood was first settled by, uh, really by Trinity Church, because Trinity Church owned a lot of the land down Uh there um, and still does uh, own a lot of land. Uh, Trinity owns a lot of stuff. Trinity owns this building. So after the revolution, the church... Burned down had burned down during the war. There was a terrible fire burned down. They had to rebuild the church and the congregation grew and uh, the city was starting to grow. And so they wanted to expand and they, they, they wanted to build a new church um, a little further north, just just north of City Hall. And so they built uh, a chapel called St. John's Chapel, which was on Vestry and, and Verick. And in front of the church, they built a, a park called St. John's Park or Hudson Square. And that, that park um, was a private park. There were houses that were- that Like were great, Gramercy Park. In fact, was the model for Gramercy Park and Washington Square Park. Right. They built houses around the park and they wanted, um, they wanted basically wealthy people who were mostly living down on like Broadway and further, further South, like closer to wall street. They wanted them to move in there. And so that neighborhood becomes a wealthy kind of very genteel enclave around the park, um, between 1820 and 1850. But then you have the railroad. Cornelius Vanderbilt builds, a uh, the Hudson river railroad line along Hudson street and starts running trains up and down to ship things back and forth. And, um, uh, The residents of that neighborhood don't want to be close to the railroad. And so they start to leave. And so by 1867... um, They fled that area. They were completely out of the area. And the park is sold and and converted into a rail yard uh, by, by Vanderbilt. And so... Again, you have you have this sort of waxing and waning wow. of life in 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 a particular area, growth and death, mostly due you know partly due to technological change. I wow. mean, you have you have the, the, the coal powered steam engine, you have railroads. The end of it with the Jeff Bezos of his era. He was like that exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so, but what I want you to get to is what was the genesis of this piece you wrote? So after Sandy, my my parents left. Um, they moved up up to the Hudson Valley. And a lot of the buildings down there were empty. And um, obviously something was going to be done with them. Um, I didn't know what. They knocked down the building. It was demolished in 20, end of 2014, early 2015. And, you know, that was, that was painful to, to experience. It was very painful, actually. Yeah. It was very sad. Um, and I had a lot of feelings about it. And at the time, I had uh, I, I had actually been recently laid off from a demanding job, and I was kind of burned out, and I wanted to do something a little bit different. And I went down there one day, and the building was completely gone. And I was looking down into the foundation, and I was like, "Well, wait a minute, what's in there?" Like I wondered. I was like, "Oh, were there, you know, American Indians who lived there? Was there? Is there like some archaeological history in there? I want to know what was under there because I never thought about the building." As not being there. And then number two, like what it was on in the first place. That started me off in this sort of inquiry. And I didn't plan to write anything. I didn't plan to tell anybody. I just was going to answer the question for myself. And so I started digging into it. And um, I found a lot of interesting stuff that in collecting the material and looking into it, the only way I could make sense of it was to write it all down and compile it into some form that could communicate both my feelings about the experience of having grown up in this place as well as what I was learning about the history of the place and perhaps what the future of the place might be. Um, so that was really the genesis of writing that particular How long did it take you to write the piece? There's like
2: copious research involved in this piece. I, I
3: got a little carried away. <laughs>
0: and <laughs> yeah. you know, answer these questions. very nuggety in this yeah, piece. Yeah. It has a
3: lot of stuff in it. And I did do a fair amount of research. I'd, I'd spent a lot of time in the library, which I have to say, if, if um, anyone uh, is, is interested in supporting an institution, the New York Public Library is probably the best one I can think of right now. And I just kept finding things that I was like, oh, my God, look at these photographs. Look at this material of St. John's Park or these images of the docks in lower Manhattan in 1899 or whatever. Like, and all of this is gone. Like, these are phantoms that have been forgotten about but made the city what it is. They're the reason why I was there at all. And I wanted to capture that and share it. Your and dad also, moved in 1969. They moved, Yeah, my mom and dad moved there in 69. And um, when they moved there, that building had been empty for probably at least five years, had been an industrial manufacturing building where they made protesting cough syrup. There was no bathroom. There was no kitchen. There was, there was nothing. When, when artists moved into that neighborhood at that time, they were moving into largely commercial spaces, renting them on like 10-year commercial leases and living there, which was technically illegal. Illegal.
2: What do they do about the facilities that they didn't have? Where do they they, they put
3: them in. They put they in, put in um, you know uh, hardwood fixtures. floors yeah. and the kitchens and bathrooms and stuff. And your dad did that. Yeah. And rent was I mean, a cheap, of the, yeah. you know? So the owners who
2: had run it as the industrial building, they were commercial landlords.
3: Yes. Let exactly. them come
2: in there. They just turned a blind eye. Yes. When I came to New York in nineteen seventy nine, it was the beginning of the flip of Soho. And you'd read in The Village Voice, you'd read about, you know, the battle to save industrial space in New York. And everyone kept saying, well, maybe it'll come back. And eventually you get to the, I don't know what year was, 77, 78, 79, where it's, it's basically ruled they're not coming back. And they allow the residential build out of Soho. This place was a bolt factory. This place was a sewing machine factory on Green Street or Westbrook, and they're all gone. And you're in front of all these
3: cast iron buildings, and they're about to flip. But Tribeca was behind that. Right, exactly. I mean, also, under the the Lenape, because the Lenape Indians were the original inhabitants of Manhattan, what I didn't really know was that there hadn't been people there before. It had been the river, that particular strip of Lower Manhattan was Phil. Was it was filled It had originally like when European settlers got there in the very beginning, all of that was was the river, and and it was filled in over over the course of, of several years. And I I found who who filled it in. I found out who who filled it in. Well, what happens is between 1790 and 1803, the city starts to sell the water rights to the coast of the of the island and say. You, we will sell the rights to the coast if you develop it. If you develop it, and so real estate speculators, a guy named Hugh Gain is one of them. Uh, he was a printer. Uh, he was a publisher. He was a, a, a real estate speculator. Um, kind of was a little bit on both sides of the war in the revolution. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Right. Um, he buys the, the the particular lots there and um, starts to develop. And they had then, the river divided up into lots. Yeah, they they divided up into lots. And so, what he does is, or what they do is, is they 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 first they build these wharves. I guess the little wharves are called cob wharves, and then they start to kind of like fill in the space in between them, with with junk, with with oyster shells, with uh, detritus from the city, from uh, you know uh, f- earth from from hills that have been leveled uh, further inland on, on the island. And over the course of about twenty five years, the the um, the West Street. Uh, areas developed. So like, you know, Washington Street is is filled in. Then the block west of Washington is filled in and then there's there's West Street. Now, that edge of the island was still pretty rough even all the way up until about 1870 when the city goes in and really standardizes Of course, it then, must be a massive
2: engineering project. It, and it took it
3: took a long time. But uh yeah, so I so I found that and what that told me was that when Sandy flooded Lower Manhattan the high-water mark lines up with the contours of the island before it was settled. It, it You can overlay the—I found this That's amazing— It is. It is like that. You can overlay the 1609 version of Manhattan to Sandy, the the inundation zone, and it, it lines up right in there. And God what, doesn't like Tribeca. Okay. No. It, it, <laughs> he doesn't want Tribeca there. Maybe he doesn't like the settlement so much. Right, I, I don't right, know, because— right. yeah. Before Hugh gained, before settlement, before they developed it, it was it was swamp. I suppose the word is takeaway or what have you. But when when you look back on, you spent a lot of time
2: writing this. Yeah, you spent a lot of time researching. There's a Not lot of research way. that went in this. And when you're done, how do you feel about what's happened to the property, your
3: home? Have you made peace with that, or are you still? Yeah. So it's a place that I love. It's my home. It's the village in which I was raised. Regardless of of the 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 economics, regardless of who's who's living there, regardless of the historic preservation or the real estate or whatever, my takeaway is that my home is in jeopardy from climate change. I think that yeah. that particular place yeah. is is at risk of being an uninhabitable place in in a generation or two, and. Doesn't matter if you make a lot of money or if you are just a, a normal person working to to make a living. We're facing a threat that requires us to confront together, or else we will have to retreat to other boundaries. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, well, with with my family, we had to go. We said to my father, "You can't stay there yeah. because if there's another Sandy, you won't make it through." Yeah. So we chose to, to move to higher ground. Um, you know, there will be people who will listen to this and think that I'm crazy. Look at the property values, and you can still make so much money and apartments down there, and they're selling for millions and millions. And the true threat from climate change may be far off, but for us, it's in the rearview mirror, right? New York is an island on an estuary. It's, it's, a, it's, it's surrounded by water. We are not immune, and there are a lot of people with a lot of precious things here that are at risk. And we have to either solve our political problems and start dealing with it, or we have to make a plan, and I have not heard any politician or leader adequately address the scale of what we're truly dealing with. Well, not in this country. And not in this country. I I think I will say, like, God bless her. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is one of the few who's actually saying it. And here's the other thing about it. We're not good at dealing with problems that are beyond our imagining. If I told you on September 10th, 2001, that by noon the next day, the two towers would be uh, gone. yeah. Completely, and thousands of people would be dead. Most mm-hmm. people would have thought you were crazy if you had said that. But the next day, what happened? And and I remember seeing those buildings and 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 the the hole in the from the plane and thinking, how are they going to fix that? How are they, how are they going to repair that? Yeah. And it didn't occur to me that they weren't going to be able to fix it. That that there are some things, there are some problems that you just cannot it can't fix, solve. That, that you can't that it can't solve. And I think that with with a situation like we're facing, with what is coming with climate change. Um, it is one of those problems, and so either we address the problem and do what we have to do to cut emissions, or whatever it is, whatever those policy things are, to try. We're not even trying right now. We're not even trying. Not our, even. our politics are so broken we can't In this even country, try. Yeah. If that is the case, then we have to say, okay, what does that mean? If it means that the whole neighborhoods are going to flood, we have to be prepared for. How do we get people out of that? Yeah. At high tide, the Lenape they could canoe from the East River up a creek into the Collect Pond, which is now where the Center Street Courthouse is, across another creek to the Hudson without getting out of the boat. Right. And if you look at projections of what climate change will do in lower Manhattan, no. it may be okay. possible again. Author and
2: filmmaker Matthew Landfield on the past, present and future of his native soil. His article is called Requiem for a Living City, Notes on a Home in Tribeca, and it's available on his website, mattlanfield.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
0: Right Rug Flooring.